Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood sports and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer and current big law media attorney. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani, founder of Lola Media, season four watcher of Succession, which premiered over the weekend, and it was fantastic. Paul, I don't think, did you have a chance to watch it yet? I have not. I spent the weekend, much like you do, in the nation's capital. Oh, yeah. Which is very exciting. Did the White House tour, did the Capitol tour, and it was inspiring. Saw the cherry blossoms, although when I was there, the weather wasn't great. But did not watch any TV or film this weekend, unfortunately. Well, you know, that's probably a good thing. Get a little break. I mean, here's the thing about the D.C. thing is that cherry blossom season's Traffic goes insane. Plane tickets are insane. Train tickets are insane. Hotel prices yeah. are insane. I actually got here yesterday, and uh, I've never paid so much for a train. And then the traffic it just took to get around. But it is pretty with the cherry blossoms around here. So I understand. That's great that you got to enjoy that ish, kind of, given the weather. Yeah, and actually, the first day I got there was like 80 degrees. And then the next two were cold and rainy. So, you know, that's a little bit of a bummer. But And the day... We left, it was gorgeous, but we weren't there for that day. <laughs> nice. Well, good, good. Cherry Blossoms are a special event in D.C., and so at least you got to see some of it. So what is it? Is a peak, like, two weeks long? It's right around now for the next, like, two, three weeks. Okay. Even driving through the city, you notice it all around. You're like, oh, wow. It's pretty breathtaking. Yeah. It's very, very pretty. I mean, I lived in D.C. for seven years, so... This was normal for me, and I didn't realize how many people travel here for it. So, but you know, it's a uh, it's a good time. It just means that spring's around the corner. Weather's getting better. Same thing in New York. It was pretty rainy, but at least it's getting warmer. Spring season right around the corner from summer season, and uh, all the new shows again picking up. Like I said, Succession just started again. I've got a last season. It's very very good for a first episode. So highly recommend. Uh, when you get the time to catch up on it. I actually have to finish season three. Oh, that's right, that's right. Finish season three <laughs> to be ready for season four. So, Paul, our first story for today, we're going to talk about Sharon Stone, who was accepting a Courage Award from Women's Cancer Research Fund. She gave a really, really beautiful speech just about more research and money and donations that go towards cancer research and the support of breast cancer survivors. But there was some interesting, I wouldn't call it a twist, but in her speech, she was talking about how it's hard to give right now. It's a difficult time for people, but please write a check. She was even saying, quote, Sharon Stone said, I'm a technical idiot, but I can write an effing check. And right now- Oh yeah, she couldn't do the text to donate, yeah, but yeah, she could write yes, a check. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And she said, and right now, that's courage, too, because I know what's happening. I just lost half my money in this banking thing, and that doesn't mean I'm not here, said Stone. And so she was referring to, at the time that her speech was given, the uh, Silicon Valley banking collapse, um, which was, again, part of this like regional bank scare that's happening right now. And I thought it was interesting to bring it up for two reasons. One, I mean, it's something we can quickly talk about and 
And I know people have been reading about this in the news, but I was also curious, like, how it directly affected her. I mean, it could be for many, many reasons, but I could think about how she would be affected in that case. It was a star-studded event. Maroon 5, I think, performed, closed the night, and she won the Courage Award. And she's, you know, she's dealt with a lot. I think she had cancer. I don't know if it was breast cancer or whether it was misdiagnosed. She lost her brother recently of heart disease. And like that was like a couple weeks before that she gave the speech that her brother just passed. And she's like, you know, life goes on. We have to still be there. We have to support. We have to donate. I don't fully understand how she lost half her money. Maybe um, she was she owned SVB stock or something. I think I, I think the I mean not the only way. There's many ways you can lose money. But quick recap on what had happened: Silicon Valley Bank, which is a regional bank that focuses on the tech sector directly, like around these VC backed startups, anything from starting a company to you know being multi billion dollar companies. They were basically so concentrated in what they did. They took their money and they invested in these like long dated bonds. And in the case of what they're trying to do, they need short duration liquidity when people are trying to pull their money out. And in their case, with interest rates going up, the assets that they had bought, these long durations, like 10 years, the assets went down and they basically lost money on their balance sheet. And then they sold it. Oh, because they bought bonds paying yeah. super low interest. And then when market rates go up to like exactly. four or five percent. Yeah. yeah. And and so they took a loss on this. And this was just around the same time that there were a few people out there that were saying that the Silicon Valley balance sheet is not that healthy. So people were putting a short on the stock, and then it just like you had this capitulation. You had people being like, okay, well, if they don't have liquidity right now, let's take our money out and just like move it around. And then it just, you know, you had a fastball come in. A run on the bank. A run on the bank. And and, and especially like in tech world, like things get around pretty quickly. But at the end of the day, if you have your money with a bank and you're worried about liquidity, yeah, you're going to go somewhere else. And what ended up happening was everyone was worried that if you put your money in a bank and your deposits are not safe, even though they're FDIC insured up to 250000 but for businesses, you're like, well, they didn't do anything Yeah, they wrong. could have hundreds of millions. Exactly. Right? If the bank is doing bad asset management, which is a, a regulatory issue as well, let's move it. And so the scare was from the government stepping in and the Fed stepping in was really more around – well, if this regional bank gets screwed, what about all the other regional banks that everyone gets worried about? So you have like First Republic, you have, you know, I mean, there's Bank of Hawaii, and then a lot of these regional banks do commercial real estate lending. So that's actually the big scare. Anyways, that had a big effect on the banking sector. Obviously, the big banks were okay for the most part, like the JP Morgans of the world, but these regional banks were all like dropping 25, 40, 50%. So I'm wondering if she owned these banks directly, maybe in her portfolio, or maybe she was worried because she banked with one of them and she was a little bit worried about that. So that was a bit unclear. Didn't the government did say that depositors, notwithstanding the $250,000 limit with FDIC insurance, would be fully protected, right? Yes. I don't know if what that maybe there's the devil's in the details there. No, but you're right. If, if she's about. a depositor, she'd be totally fine. So it's really more like, okay. does she own certain assets in her portfolio? And then maybe it was just like that week, everyone was a bit nervous, or maybe she's exposed to a lot of VC funds. Uh, who who knows what it is? Like, it could be anything, but from the depositor standpoint, she should be okay. But if she was directly invested in these like regional banks, yes, like she could potentially have lost 50% of her money if she was exposed in a large way, which would... You know, I'm just in my head, I'm thinking like, 
hopefully she's actually okay and it wasn't that big of an effect on her checkbook. Or maybe, I, you know, who knows why she said that specifically. I was just curious when, when I saw the headline, I was like, you know, something to be brought up. It's so, it's so specific to say something like that in the speech, but um, you never know. Yeah, and she said, uh, interestingly, she said she made notes for t- her speech at that event, whereas normally she just goes up and sort of, sort of wings it. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, hit home, hit close to that. Well, hopefully everything works out for her. Listen, it's a tough time for a lot of people. Yeah. No one's really been spared. And good that she was still able to inspire people to donate. I'm actually on the board of a couple nonprofit organizations, and we have to raise money every year. And in times like this, it's just challenging, right, to get people to write a check uh, when they're concerned about the economy and their jobs and whatever, but it's still important. It doesn't mean, yeah, you know, in recessions, that doesn't mean like the causes that we need to support go away or don't need yeah. money. It's just, it's maybe not as easy to fund them, but it's still as important. Yeah, it's just a tough time, you know, in terms of the stock market, the economy, um, just generally fundraising environment. It's been very, very challenging for most people. So it's the right causes that she's speaking for. So again, hope everything's okay with her. And um, let's take a break and then let's come back and talk about a company that is not having those issues. If anything, it's the opposite. And uh, they're doing extremely well. A24 Film Studio. Uh, We'll talk about it after the break. So as you said, A24 uh, had a crushed it this year. They won nine Oscars between Everything Everywhere All at Once and The Whale. And they won all of the Best Actor awards, right? Because Brendan Fraser won Best Actor. And then the Best Actress, Michelle Yeoh, Best Supporting Actor, Kihei Kwan, and Best Supporting Actress, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. So that was a really interesting thing. I don't know if an indie studio has ever done that. Yeah. But they were the most nominated studio. They were nominated for 18 Oscars. They won nine, which is just crazy. That's great. And the fact is they're a 10, 11-year-old company founded by three indie film slash finance guys, David Fenkel, Daniel Katz, John Hodges. John Hodges actually left in 2018. But there was an article that came out because they're notoriously tight-lipped. Like they don't actually talk a lot about themselves. Yeah. They don't do a lot of press individually. Um But one of their investors, this venture capital firm, Stripes, who actually has a really good track record. They've invested in like On Running, Levain Bakery, and Erwan, and Gimlet. So, you know, they don't do a ton in the media space. Yeah, they've got good taste. They've got good taste, exactly. You've seen On Shoes everywhere. They're great. No, Jessica has some On Boots, and she wore them like everywhere all the time because they were super comfortable and also supportive. And so Ken Fox is at Stripes, and he he said that, you know, listen, they have great taste, obviously. And he said they're looking for companies in the consumer products, tech space, sometimes media, but they really are looking for diamonds in the rough, needles in the haystack, companies that are outperforming, that are admired and loved by their customers, and that are at their inflection points. And that's what A24 is. So a year ago, they put $225 million into A24, which I think they got around 10%. So the valuation was like around yeah. two and a half billion. Like 2.5 billion, yeah. And that's crazy to think about an indie studio raising that much money. That was their first institutional investment. And so what this is really enabling them to do is expand. And so in the beginning, 
when they started, they were a film distribution company. So a lot of what they would do would be like, they'd go to the festivals, they'd buy films that were up for sale, independently financed, and then they would distribute them and they'd put their logo on it. And so they were exercising a lot of their taste, yeah, right? Because they picked a lot of winners. But as they you know, made money from the distribution, were starting to raise capital, built out their team, they started producing and funding films themselves. And so what they're building is really, I mean, it sounds like the goal, and we haven't talked to anyone directly. It seems like, according to this Deadline article, their goal is really to build a multifaceted international studio that also does other things like consumer products, perhaps a subscription service, gets into beauty products and audio, so podcasting, and and really just they want to be like maybe not even an independent, right? Like they want to be a major. Well, it, it seems like that it's like we get to witness firsthand like the growth of a studio to become like a big, big, you know, just like some of the studios that we've all seen, you know, from like Disney to Fox, et cetera. Like this is watching something in the last decade grow and now they've got – not only success, they've got money to be able to go and acquire, you know, potentially getting more into TV distribution and TV creation, to your point about merch. But um, they also have, like, a really, really loyal fan base. So fans just, when they see A24 now, it's kind of like the equivalent of, like, how Marvel fans would be like, a Marvel movie, let's go watch this. But with A24, it's like, oh, A24 is doing this? It's going to be good. And then they have a really good reputation when it comes to working with talent like directors and actors and actresses, everyone wants to work with them because they think about creative first. Now we'll see what happens with that as you become a bigger studio. But just to list out some of these hits that they've had so people are aware, Moonlight, Hereditary, Lady Bird, Uncut Gems, Ex Machina, those are some of the the movies that have done very, very well. Minari, Last Black Man in San Francisco, The Farewell. As you said, Marcel the Shell. And then they also have TV. They have Euphoria, Euphoria, Rami. Back to your point about consumer products, Euphoria, which is one of A24's show, makeup artist who is part of uh, Euphoria, Donnie Avi, launched Half Magic, which is a makeup line. And obviously, like, Euphoria has a really, really strong base amongst, like, young teens and, like, you know, older teens who... Look, these guys make in the show the style, the fashion, the makeup. They follow this stuff, and I think they've been able to see that they could produce products out of these films and TV, and I think Euphoria is a good example of that. Right. They spend, I don't know, maybe 15 to $20 million on their films. Some of them are bigger. I know they, they have an Alex Garland film, Civil War, which I think is going to be a $50 million budget. So their budgets are obviously getting bigger. They have more money. They've had a couple successes. You know, you win nine Oscars, obviously, you start taking larger bets. But it's really, I think maybe a sports analogy makes sense here because their growth and their success is not a result necessarily of some technological innovation. It's not like they invented some new way of distributing content, which enabled Netflix to really grow and raise money and just dominate. And it's not like they revolutionized like retail like Amazon did, right? They're just really good at picking winners. And not every movie and every show they make is a success, but they've had so many successes on small budgets that, you know, now, as you said, fans start to associate that A24 logo with something that, you know, they're going to enjoy. So it's like they're building a brand. And it's funny because they're not really overdoing the franchise thing the way Hollywood is like, you know, making the seventh, eighth installment of the same movie because they don't want to take risk with trying out new material and potentially not having a built-in fan base. 
So they're kind of the opposite. Like everything is it's unique. Original, now they're working with yeah. the same directors over and over, right? Because they once you have a working relationship with the director and the casting and all that. With the Daniels, they did Swiss Army Man, and then that was their first yeah. project with him. Then everything, everywhere, all at once. So they had a working relationship. They knew how the directors work. They were comfortable working with them. But it's not like they're telling the same story over and over, which is a criticism that others 100%. would have of the major studios. Yeah, it's that the major studios don't take any risk and like it's like another sequel, another reboot, another, you know, another superhero movie. And in this case, to your point, these are all original movies that have just done incredibly well and they're very, very entertaining and they're they're fantastic. And I think now you can, you, it's almost like you can feel the momentum. Well, so the sports analogy here is in baseball, you have large market teams that are spending 350 million in their payrolls, right? Like teams in major cities like New York, LA, San Diego. And then you have small market teams that might spend 10% of that. And, you know, like the Tampa Bay, raise and it's when you see a small market team that's competitive year after year it's because they're really good at scouting and identifying up and coming talent people that are less expensive but still perform and that's really what a24 is doing so they might be spending you know a fraction of what these major studios are because they're able to sort of have creative freedom and identify things and they're they're sort of tapping into the culture of the moment and you know yeah. they have this brand they're having a moment create clearly like millennials love them and you know not everything is a success but they've had a high percentage of successes starting with moonlight yeah, yeah, yeah starting with moonlight which from what i read was originally backed by Brad Pitt's plan b yeah. that helped them with that movie and and moonlight was one of that you know won the oscar and and it's changed the game for them. But, uh, you know, these two guys, like David Fenkel, Daniel Katz, I, I, there was a third founder as well, but who left, John in, Hodges, in, yeah. who left in 2018. Um, you know, they're like art house film executives got together. This is also a New York-based studio. I was reading this interesting article about how, you know, they're essentially outsiders to LA and Hollywood. And they are New York-based. They, even in their company, it's like, it's an open floor plan. Everyone works with each other. There's not like titles. Even when they think about marketing, marketing is um, given that they don't have these massive budgets. They try to think about marketing, guerrilla marketing, and like certain interesting ways to you know do things in a creative way that people are talking about. One of the examples was with Ex Machina during South by. They teamed up with Tinder, where Ava, who's the character in Ex Machina, you were like opening up Tinder, and then you'd see her profile, and then it would take you to the trailer. And so, like, I think that's actually kind of cool. Like, it, I mean, that's a little bit of a bait and switch, don't you think? But I guess it. I guess <laughs> yeah. it's good marketing. Yeah, it is. It is good marketing. I mean, and I would say this: if you if you seen if you seen Ex Machina, you do not want to go on a date with Ava. She'd probably kill you. So it's probably better just to get the trailer there. But I'd say that, like, the taste thing. It's. I think the important thing here is that while now they have bigger budgets, so they're going for bigger films and more TV stuff and again consumer products like will they be able to keep that like pace of not only doing things well from a taste standpoint but from a talent standpoint and people want to still work with them well and they I got joaquin phoenix is working with them they got a movie coming out with him zach efron he's doing the iron claw pete davidson and orlando bloom are going to be doing wizards so it seems like more and more people want to work yeah, with bit, them, yeah more right? and more it's people like, want to work with them now it's you got to be on an a24 film Right. Well, I, th I think that goes again to like uh, I was reading about Sofia Coppola, a director who had done who's done two movies with them. She said, "Look, like they're great to work with because they understand creative. They like they want to take risks." And I think 
from what we've seen of or heard of the stories in Hollywood, like, you know, risk is a big thing and especially creative risk. So it, it's a nice balance that they have and it's paying off. Like all these movies to some degree are a little like they've got this certain vibe to them, right? Like The Lobster, Lady Bird, Hereditary, Moonlight, Uncut Gems. Obviously now- every, Room. Room. Everything, everywhere, all at once was like, hey, we can be a big budget movie and still be a little like quirky. Because that movie cost, what, $25 million to make? And they and they made $108 million in, I wouldn't say office. 25 is a big budget. I mean, that's the thing. It's on the large side of- you know, indie for sure, but it would, it's still small though, is my point. Yeah. It's still small. And that's the thing is like, when you don't have a lot of money, you can't really waste a lot of money as opposed to, you know, I don't want to keep harping on this Batgirl $90 million movie. Just never even saw the light (laughs) of day. They just completely, they just tossed it in the trash because it was either bad or they didn't want to pay royalties or they wanted a tax write off or whatever. You couldn't imagine a 24, at least at this iteration of A24 spending $90 million on a film and not releasing it, right? Like, right. If it, I'm pretty confident if they spent $90 million on a film, it would be pretty good. And I think that's what the Stripes is saying. The whole team, right, has vision and they have that special sauce. And no one would invest in a movie business expecting every film to be a hit. That would just never happen. Mm-hmm. But if you can hit on 30% of them, you know, and everything everywhere all at once was 25 million, but it made 108 million in box office plus the seven Oscars. So like that's, un, you know, a resounding success. But others also have been. And Uncut Gems, for example, was pre-pandemic 2019. I don't know if it made that much money, but they had worked with the directors on Good Time, which are, which is a Robert Pattinson movie and then they go back with Uncut Jumps, and this is a whole different side of Adam Sandler, and it was like a win-win for everyone. And call me crazy, but I don't think a major studio puts Adam Sandler in Uncut Gems. I just mm. don't think they would make that creative decision yeah. because it's like, you know, they just, they're so focused on staying in the box. Yeah, no, agreed. And, and you know, one, one more, like, now that they have all this money, as well as, like, uh, reading an article saying that they're cash flow positive, but now they have this like influx of capital that they make other acquisitions. They bought Cherry Lane Theater in New York for $10 million. Cherry Lane Theater is in, is in the West Village, uh, I believe. And um, I, I think it's an interesting thing. Like, yeah, it's in the West Village. The plan there is, you know, do they want all these people that they're working with? Are they going to be now supporting like off-Broadway plays or who knows what they could be doing with that? But it's probably, again, going back to like this loyal fan base that they have and being close to like their fans and close to the street, having an ear to talent, you know, potentially what up and coming talents coming through there. So that, to me, that was an interesting acquisition. Well, the other thing is, so, you know, in the television side and it's changed dramatically over the past 10 years, but they're a 10 year old company, which is like nothing in this, in the lifespan of Hollywood. But I remember working and there's so much hurry up and wait, right? Like you hire a director, you get a script, a writer, you get it, you put together, you know, a treatment or whatever it is, you submit it to the studio and then you wait and maybe they, they move forward with it. Maybe they don't, maybe it goes nowhere and you're sitting there waiting for like months and months and perhaps even years. And now they have the money to make their own stuff. And they also have the reputation where people are going to buy it. So for example, Apple, when they're launching Apple TV Plus, they did an output deal with A24 because they're like, we need to populate mm. this thing with content. Yeah. Well, what's one way that we know we're going to, yeah. you know, we're reasonably likely to ensure that we'll get good content? Let's do a deal with A24. Same thing with Showtime, right? So everything everywhere all at once is now streaming on uh, Showtime because they have a deal with A24. 
That's sick. I like that a lot. Well, I'm excited to watch more of their movies and more of their shows. This was fun for us to do because I'm, I'm genuinely a fan. So it was fun to like go down this road and learn more about them. But Paul, let's take a break and then let's get back and we'll talk about Mr. Bad Bunny and some uh, legal issues he's getting into. So last week we talked about Tiger Woods got sued by his ex-girlfriend for $30 million for, um, I guess, kicking her out of the house and breaking an oral tenancy agreement. We'll see how that plays out. This week, another um, love story turned sour. Yeah. Uh, Bad Bunny's ex. It was actually a really nice romance. So uh, according to what I was reading, they were dating in 2011 through 2016. They had to break up because she went to law school. But in the beginning of their relationship, you know, he was trying to get off the ground in his career. He was always making music, playing shows and like working on songs. And he would run everything by her and she would do his bookings. Her, her name is Carly's De La Cruz. Yeah. She's also from Puerto Rico. He asked her to record the phrase Bad Bunny Baby. Right. And she says it in a very yeah. cool, like sultry voice. Yeah. She recorded it on her iPhone and sent it to him. And he placed that recording at the beginning of Pati and then also in Dos Mil 16, yeah. which was on Un Verano Sinti. Both of these songs have been streamed on Spotify over 200 million times, maybe yeah. maybe 500 million in the yeah, aggregate. Collectively, yeah. Uh, viewed on YouTube maybe 50, 60, 100 million times. I don't know exactly. Well, pa- well, Not pa- necessarily. Pati on YouTube is 355 million alone just on YouTube. Well, I don't know if you've seen that video, but it got to 355 million in one last night. No, it's a it's a good video, and uh, he's a yeah. You know, listen, Bad Bunny is an international superstar. This seems to me so. She's suing for forty million dollars because she's claiming that she never agreed to let him use the recording of her voice saying "Bad Bunny, baby." And I mean, the thing strikes me as a little bit opportunistic because now he's this the number one or arguably number one international star. I guess he's up there with Ed Sheeran, Taylor Swift, The Weeknd, whatever. But he's a huge star. Um, If she just made this recording on her iPhone and released it as a single, odds are it wouldn't have gotten 350 million streams or views. So, and they were dating and like, this is just like a, a half second clip. I mean, this is just my opinion, but it just seems like the fact that she filed a lawsuit and she's asking for $40 million in damages I don't know if this is at all related to the fact that he's now been dating Kendall Jenner or has been seen with Kendall Jenner or whatever that is. That's a whole he's different He's in the press. Of- he's constantly in the press now because of not only his music success, but now he's like, you know, it's more like page six type news with Kendall Jenner. And so maybe this is a good opportunity for her to get attention on this. Now, I have a different opinion on this. I think that if you're with someone for a long time, you're part of their career, you give them something that makes them – you know, throw them, throw them a couple bucks or like give them like a well, writing so this, credit. And we'll get into this. So just to get into the actual detail here. So Carly's De La Cruz is suing Bad Bunny, whose real name is Benito Martinez Ocasio. She's also suing his manager, Noah Camille Asad Byrne. Right. And she's suing his label, Remus Entertainment, for the inclusion of those words in two songs. Uh, and she's saying as a result of the inclusion of those words, since then, she's gotten a lot of like attention and people have been commenting on our social media and she was never compensated. She never gave permission. There's no written agreement. But she's also saying it's her recognizable voice. So she's trying to plead all the facts that would give you 
potentially a copyright infringement claim, potentially uh, un, an unauthorized use of your likeness, violation of your right of publicity claim. And we'll see. So interestingly, this is, I don't know if this is helpful or hurtful, probably not the best. Apparently someone from Bad Bunny's camp reached out to her the day before Un Verano Sin Tea was released. So last year, last spring, and offered her an agreement and a $2,000 payment to own the recording. She said no. She was probably, I'm assuming, insulted by the $2,000 uh, offer, <laughs> given the fact that he is literally an enormous star. <laughs> yeah. And maybe the fact that it didn't come from him directly, like the request didn't come from him directly. But at some point, someone went through the clearances and they were like, do we have copyright? Do we have either permission right. or a license or do we own the copyright in these words? And it, they said no. So they must have reached out and done a deal. Mm. Or maybe they, they said, we think we do, but we want to clarify it. It would be better if we had something written and signed than, than not. And so they tried to resolve the ambiguity or whatever. They tried to get the rights for $2,000. She said no. Boom. A year later, file the lawsuit. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I wonder now if they could be like, hey, we'll give you a writer's... Like, she probably was like, well, the song's been famous for a while. You know, it's not like you could give me a writer's credit now. Like, there's a whole backlog of royalties that have potentially been made on the song that I could have been a part of. Or they just re-record the song. Well, so let's do the legal side. So basically, as we've discussed, so music has... Every song has two copyrights. They have yeah. the composition and then the master sound recording. So she's not claiming she has any ownership in the composition because she didn't write the song. Right. Um, she didn't write that lyric. It's just Bad Bunny Baby. So like Bad Bunny actually told her to say that, but she's saying that she does own the copyright in the recording right, right. because it's her performance. And typically I would tell any artist, anyone that is in the studio, anyone that's in the recording booth, anyone that contributes to that recording needs to sign something right. with your label, with you, so that you own the rights to the sound recording. Because otherwise this can happen. Because if you are on the sound recording and you haven't consented and you haven't entered into an agreement, then you could potentially block the release of that song. Question is, how important is she to the song? And if she had made a big deal about this before the song was released, he probably could have just re-recorded it or had someone else say it. And then, you know, you move on. And that's where they're getting the $2,000 number because literally anyone right. could have said that line. That makes sense. That but makes sense. The, the, the cat's out of the bag. The song's already been released. The songs have made a lot of yeah. money. So now they're potentially sweating out what the damages might be. I don't know. 40 million seems like a reach to that me, but like you're at least getting to a point where someone like a judge or jury is going to think about what this is worth, which is why we always tell people, get it in, get it in writing, get the mm. clearances before you spend a lot of money. Because if something becomes a hit, then you can be held up, right? At, at, you know, I agree. I, I think like 40 million seems a bit outrageous. 200k for something like that. I don't know. That seems a that seems like round a, a number that makes sense for her. 2000 Pay like for too her low. law school, like whatever. Yeah, yeah I mean, whatever. He, he's got yeah, yeah. He's got the money, but you know now they're they're in this jump ball state where maybe they get to a judge or a jury and they have to prove actual. They could either prove actual damages if that's not enough, then they could prove a potential of lost profits. Like if she wrote half the song or if she was integral to the song, that could be potentially more damage and then there's statutory damages which i don't think will apply here because i don't think she's registered the copyright and i don't think the infringement was willful but she could attempt to say that her words would have made all this money or the song wouldn't have been a hit without her but really if you listen to the song i mean her part is just it's really just the intro sure. it has nothing to sure. do with the actual song yeah. 
So it just seems like a very opportunistic suit, which is a real shame for Bad Bunny. It is. It is. And I know you're a, a, a Bad Bunny fan. So I think uh, uh, the lesson here, anyone who's getting involved in music, if you're doing a recording, as Paul said, get something in writing um, or get yourself a Paul. And Paul, as yeah. always, good breakdowns. This was a fun one. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast, folks. That's our show for this week. Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera and assistant producer Lisa Sanders. Have a great week. Thanks, everyone.